Hi everyone, welcome to a new talk of Europe after coronavirus, a series of podcasts promoted by OpenEU Debates, a Jean Monnet sponsor network. My name is Carlos Carnicero Uravallin, I am a journalist here in Brussels, and today we will analyze how the COVID-19 crisis is affecting EU values. The editors of this podcast series wrote in a book coordinated by Orian Caligaro that EU values are a taboo, revered but not actually invoked. So what do we make of the growing number of references to values during these unprecedented pandemic times? Will this crisis have a lasting impact on these values? We are joined by three great experts on EU affairs. And I already mentioned Oriane Caligaro, Associate Professor at the European School of Political and Social Sciences in Lille. Welcome, Oriane. Thank you very much for the invitation. Great. We're also joined by Miriam Lexman, a member of the European Parliament and part of the European, European People's Party. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to the discussion. You're welcome. And last but not least, let me introduce you to Elisabetta Nataluti, postdoctoral researcher at the Université Grenoble-Alpes. Welcome, Elisabetta. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for this invitation. I look forward to participating to this uh, very interesting debate. Excellent. So what has the COVID-19 told us about European values? I think Oriane, uh, before we get started and we dive in into the, the actual implications of COVID-19 for EU values, you wanted to share with us a bit of context into where, where this conversation fits in. Would you like to start? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. Um, yes, European values, it's a very, very vast uh, topic. Um, but here we are, I think, discussing values in a time of crisis. And uh, I think it's interesting just to to remark that the COVID-19 the COVID crisis is the last and probably the most important crisis of a long series, which, well, you know, the EU faces crisis very, uh, very often. But in the last 10 years, let's say, with the start of the sovereign debt crisis, we had a succession of crises. And what is interesting is that in each of these crises, values were very much discussed, debated, uh, so if you take the sovereign debt crisis, uh, it was, you know, whether the European countries would be, would show solidarity um, towards uh, those in difficulty. But you know that those, they had been uh, flagged as the pigs, the, the southern countries. And uh, so you could see also a sort of moral judgment on this country. So um, then we had the migration uh, crisis, again, obviously, uh, value loaded uh, with showing, of course, uh, humanity um, uh, with uh, asylum seekers and migrants, but in the same time, uh, solidarity also with the countries facing uh, the major uh, flows of migrants. And again, a major crisis uh, was triggered by this, let's say, uh, conflict of, of values. Um, so, um, I think again, the COVID-19, and as you say, I mentioned the word uh, solidarity, um, the respect for human dignity, and we see that these values are again at the core of uh, the debates today. So, I think, I, I think it's important to, to, to remind us that 
the debate started even before uh, the, the, the crisis we are going through today. So from crisis to crisis and values tend to be at the core of the discussions in those crises. So uh, Elisabetta, would you add anything to what Torian uh, said about where this crisis is, is how it's happening and in what context we are, we are all suffering from this COVID-19 nightmare? Uh, yeah, uh, well, first of all, I would like to to say that I totally agree with uh, with Orian. Um, the crisis, um, this crisis is just uh, another added crisis that unfortunately the European Union needs to, to address. Um, and uh, as Oriana pointed out, uh, all the crises that the European Union uh, lived are um, crises that are really rooted uh, in values. Although, if I may say, usually the various crises that the European Union uh, had and is uh, addressing are usually presented as uh, economic, political kind of crises. And uh, although values are mentioned um, and discussed generally, um, they are not really addressed. And when I say this, I just would like to highlight that, uh, yes, we discuss about values, but we don't define them. We, we don't really uh, address the very meaning of these values. Uh, usually values are misinterpreted um, because we, we talk about norms, uh, we talk about values, and we don't have really vocabulary that help us to understand what these values are. Uh, and how to implement them on the ground. So yes, about solidarity, but what is solidarity and towards who we have to address this solidarity. The European Union in 2015 had to address uh, the immigration crisis and um, sometimes the people from outside Europe uh, were perceived as those towards whom this values should be implemented, but today the European Union needed to address uh, an inside uh, problem. Um, so I would like yeah, to, to, to point out the importance to define these values and not just to talk about norms that are implemented through laws. Values are also ethical values that are linked to behaviour. And we have seen how this crisis initially has been uh, addressed, where yes, was not really implemented and for example I'm Italian and I'm living actually uh, in France I was in Grenoble ma um, now I am in Paris and at the very beginning when, when uh, Italy was really hated by, by the crisis uh, and I was here in Paris actually it was like uh, if uh, it was a problem linked to Italy and because I was Italian the first question that was asked was uh, into Italy, so are you dangerous? Are you, you know, you, you, you I mean, I lived on my own um, skin, if I can say this uh, of solidarity. It's interesting. I think, Elisabetta, what you're, what you're saying is interesting about the fact that we talk about European values, but we, we tend to give them for granted, or we tend yes. to give for granted the fact that we have a common understanding of those values. And I think. Miriam, your your view from the parliament, where there are so many political groups and, and so many members of parliament and staff for, from uh, 27 member states, 
gives you a unique perspective in terms of, of seeing whether we have a common understanding of those EU values or not. But what's your reaction to that? I would uh, completely agree with the assumption that we are talking about many values. We can list the values, uh, but we don't have a uh, common understanding what an implementation or living those values actually mean. And those values, it comes, I mean, starts with human rights, the rule of law, going to foreign policy. And maybe I'll touch uh, upon a couple of examples in terms of foreign policy, because uh, it's very interesting to see that practically this COVID crisis has accomplished sort of globalization. It, it was a unique couple of weeks or months when the entire world, every single family, every single person was part of a struggle against this virus. This wasn't the case during the, the 2008 financial crisis or 2015 refugee crisis as uh, as uh, Orian was mentioning, because those crises have touched certain parts of the population. Of course, the refugees and those parts of the population in country where the influx was high or those parts of in those countries where people were receiving uh, refugees. Rather, Also, the, uh, the financial crisis, different states were hit in a different way and different parts of the ed- economic sector was hit. So, But this was a kind of unique time where the entire world was united in one single struggle. Uh, On the other hand, I think uh, that brought a lot of discussion about the solidarity as as one of the values which brought EU together. Uh, First of all, how the countries inside of the European Union can be solidar to each other or the people can be solidar to each other. But also, I mean, in terms of foreign policy, Article 21 of the treaty says very clearly that uh, our foreign activities, foreign actions should be based on the same values which brought the European Union together. And obviously solidarity is part of, um, of, um, of those values. And of course, uh, some people could argue that the European Union is a big donor uh, in terms of uh, humanitarian aid and aid as such. But on the other hand, we can see that often we are failing to uh, do the kind of genuine support to democracy and freedom and human rights and dignity worldwide because of our economic reasons. And here I will bring up the, the issue of China. For, for a couple of years, or for many years, I would say, we were uh, hoping that economic cooperation with the regime, with, with the totalitarian regime, will, in the long run, bring... Uh, higher the economic uh, level of the society, which will inevitably make the people freer and kind of push the regime to collapse. We have realized that this wasn't the case, that practically often the regimes were profiting out of the economic profit and that that has stabilized them and make them last longer. And sometimes the regimes were even using more severe uh, pressure against the, the, the society, which was growing or becoming a little bit richer. But on the other hand, that's why the regime felt more threatened. We, uh, we knew already some time ago that this is not the case, that the co- economic cooperation is not really helping the societies to make them freer and supporting the human rights, but the contrary. And nevertheless, we haven't given up uh, enlarging our economic uh, cooperation with such regimes. 
And now, practically, this, the case of China has completely backlashed because we have realized that our economic dependency from China is a risk, that China is a, is a regime which is using hybrid, uh, uh, hybrid uh, systems to influence our own population, to deform our population, to influence the democratic procedures in our, our countries. So and I think that this is in a long this is practically a failure of uh, bringing genuine values into our foreign policy. And now th this was a big wake up call. And I think we have to really come back to the beginning and really start to discuss how we can make a better value based foreign policy, which will be not weaker, but which will actually be stronger. I just would like to, to point out that I think that this, uh, this crisis linked to uh, coronavirus um, uh, has shown there is a paradox actually in, uh, in geopolitics, uh, because on one side we have seen uh, really a kind of a global, globalization process that uh, has been unprecedented. But at the same time, there is um, a great discussion of a kind of the globalization processes, because at the very beginning, um, it seemed like uh, if nation states retreat on, on themselves in order to uh, address this crisis. Um, so, for example, Italy, okay, at the beginning asked for help, but uh, tried to, 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 to tackle the situation by, by itself. Therefore, immediately there was a lockdown that started far uh, earlier than uh, other countries. Uh, in France, the lockdown uh, started uh, after 20 days, I suppose, uh, after Italy already took this measure. In, uh, in states like uh, Sweden and Finland, uh, other kind of uh, measures have been, uh, have, been, have been taken. Therefore, yeah, about a kind of globalized, globalized reaction, but at the same time, there is also this paradox uh, where uh, it seems like, uh, yeah, there is um, a kind of deglobalization process. Also, for example, Macron, uh, started saying uh, we are going to retake some activities that we have delegated uh, to China, for example, to produce uh, masks to the national level. So I think it is important also to consider this, uh, this, uh, this paradox that is emerging uh, at the geopolitical level. Orian, so I think this is, this is interesting because I think it's been mentioned that we are united in lockdown. So never the world was so united facing a common challenge, but we're seeing uh, different approaches and, and member states uh, reacting differently. Uh, so why, why is that? Why, 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 in your view, Oriane, we are we are facing that paradox? Well, I think again, it's very early, you know, to to analyze uh, these differences in reactions, and I, I will not try to do this uh, now. Um, what is clear is um, that this crisis revealed, uh, indeed, as Elisabetta said, the the also the fragility of the of the nation state level. Um, so, and that this sort of uh, nationalist egoism uh, is not leading uh, anywhere. But I think that if we talk now really at the EU level, um, this crisis also provoked something that is really unprecedented, is that now, um, as you know, we are discussing uh, this idea, this recovery fund, and this idea of a mutualized debt, a real EU debt. 
And um, we are very much focusing on the resistances, of course, the frugal fee uh, for and uh, um, but it's still a, a historical decision. The fact that Germany and joined France in this uh, idea of a, a, a European reaction, um, I think this is uh, this is really really important. So um, it could be again, it's too early to know uh, where it's going to lead us. But uh, you know, a few months for uh, a few months uh, ago, it was still impossible uh, in Germany to uh, accept this idea of a, of a mutualized debt. And now it is a common, a common project. Um, so um, uh, indeed, the, the, the divisions were, uh, and the difference of approaches to, to this pandemic were very um, impressive. But in the same time, indeed, the, the reflection that it triggered about, as Elizabeth, Elizabeth said, um, um, the fact that maybe we, the, the, at the European level, we should be more independent uh, on, on, for instance, for certain resources like uh, uh, in the uh, in the in the mask, in certain certain uh, medical resources, etc. Uh, but also financially. Um, so indeed, maybe today we we are still in shock and we we focus very much on the division. But it might be the occasion um to boost a, a real solidarity uh, and i think that already very important steps uh, ha have been taken in this uh, in this direction uh, now just to link uh, both Orian uh, and Miriam uh, in what have been said I completely agree with uh, with the um, uh, last remark that Orian uh, has made because I think that uh, um, as Oriana said it's very difficult indeed uh, to, to, uh, to 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 project solid conclusions because uh, the crisis is, is is in the process, but I think that finally um, uh, member states uh, and the European Union uh, as a whole has understood that uh, a crisis cannot be addressed uh, only from an economic and political perspective, but uh, needs to be enriched by ethical uh, an ethical approach as well. So there are now three elements to be considered, which are equally important and uh, the economic cannot cannot overcome the other two uh, and ethics really needs to be considered uh, and ethical values and needs to be considered in this uh, in this um, uh, game, if I can say that. I would just follow up what Elizabeth just uh, kind of concluded uh, that I believe that Exactly. There is no question about if we are going to have more solidar. Of course, there is a question about if we are going to have more solidar European Union or less solidar European Union, more solidar world or less solidar world, more global globalized world or less globalized world. I think the the, the question lies in the uh, in the way how we are going to achieve this, and and. Uh, and what I believe that in the European Union, uh, yes, it's uh, very welcome that we see a kind of a united EU now in terms of how to address the economic crisis, which will definitely follow now after these pandemics. But on the other hand, I believe that now we are really scratching the surface because we are going to indebt our societies enormously, the member states enormously, but there is still lacking the discussion about 
the future of the European Union, how we are going to coexist. There are deep divisions about how the values are seen, how the values are seen should be implemented, what is the role of the European Union, what the subsidiarity principle actually means, and if it's breached, being breached or not. So I believe that we are not going to only see as a positive outcome that now we are more reunited, that we are able to uh, to kind of put on our shoulders or actually on the shoulders of the next generations this huge debt, but we really have to look into the divisions and uh, the, the cleaverages in the societies and see how this can be addressed and be very honest because we already had a couple of discussions about the future of the European where the results only were that we have uh, concluded that we do everything uh, what is right, that we have a bright future ahead of us and that the European Union is able and strong enough to deal with all the crises. But I think that now we have seen that there are crises which can shake the European Union from the from those foundations. And in terms of the global world, I'll just quickly say that uh, I don't think that we have to discuss if we are going to have a more global world and less global world. I think we have to see a more just world. And this, this is the question. We have to be sure that it's our policies are based on a, on a values and it's not they're not uh, supported only by our, our economic interests because that backlashes we're going to continue in a few seconds and i think we're going to we're going to come back to the idea of those deep divisions in eu values that miriam was just talking about i think we were discussing before about you know we we can agree on a huge package for economic recovery but we need to make sure that we have a common understanding of the future of europe and um, and i wanted to ask you about the the clashes between some member states and brussels uh, related to eu values even before covid-19 I'm, I'm thinking about hungary and poland for instance and, and there's been criticisms of how, for instance, Viktor Orban was managing the, the COVID-19 crisis. Some were saying that he was taking advantage of this crisis to, to have an even tighter uh, rule uh, in Hungary. So I, I want to, to, to start this blog with this, with this um, uh, big challenge for Europe. And I think, Oriane, you, you wanted to share with us some ideas on this. Yes. Um, no, in my, in my previous uh, intervention, I, of course, I didn't want to make... Uh, the potential uh, solidarity too big and make a, you know a, a beautiful a bright future uh, ahead because the, indeed this shock can be uh, the occasion of really implementing solidarity but as you mentioned um, the the big division on crisis uh, were there uh, before before the the, the covid-19 and um, and indeed, so uh, as you mentioned, the, the the main problem with if we take the case of Poland and Hungary was indeed how uh, the rule of law was, uh, let's say, uh, mistreated in in these two countries with other uh, fundamental rights and 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 values and also uh, the, you know the, the judicial uh, situation uh, etc. And um, it's interesting to remember that um, just before uh, the crisis hit uh, Europe so bad, so it was in January, um, the European Parliament um, uh, made a, a, a draft resolution with actually the five uh, political groups 
including the EPP, which is uh, uh, the, the, the group in which uh, the Hungarian Fidesz is, is, is uh, seating. And this resolution was asking again the, the member states to take action, especially in these two countries, Poland and Hungary, and you know to respect uh, to 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 continue this procedure of the Article Seven. So you know the Article Seven, which should be a mechanism to uh, for the EU to react in the case uh, the rule of law is uh, is not respected in one of the member states. And uh, of course, uh, the crisis changed everything again because these countries, and this is a, a very strong criticism that has been addressed to to, to the Polish and Hungarian uh, government, that these countries use uh, what uh, in Hungary is called the state of danger to further uh, um, um, attack to some extent the, the rule of law and uh, uh, the separation of powers, uh, etc. And uh, but you see that the debate continues, and I think it's also interesting because the parliament and maybe Miriam can react to this, even at the very core of the crisis, it was on, on the 70th of, of, of April, there was a new resolution precisely to react to this state of emergency, um, uh, allowing uh, the government to make uh, to, to rule uh, by decrees, etc. And, uh, and in this text, it was not only the rule of law and let's say how the government was was managing the crisis. They were even uh, a part of the resolution addressing um, uh, the attack also on the abortion rights in Poland, uh, reproductive rights. So, of course, again, very, very, very uh, value loaded issues. Um, and uh, and of course this is still ongoing. So uh, indeed we do not we should not uh, forget because of the huge economic challenge, of course the healthcare issues, etc. That uh, all the values are still um, at risk uh, in some uh, in some member states of of the EU. And um, as you as you know uh, now, uh, Orban is uh, is. Um, explaining that he finally uh, lifted this uh, state of danger but we have to be very careful because as already many NGOs uh, remarked uh, despite the fact that the state of danger has been lifted several um, uh, let's say mechanism of this state of gender danger are, are still working and threatening uh, the the democracy and rule of law in, in Hungary so this is indeed another challenge, and this one is 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 still uh, going on for for the EU. So, so Miriam, I, th I think you, yeah, of course, Miriam, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I would like to react to this because I see it a little bit from a different perspective. Uh, I think that the problem was, and I saw it as a very very problematic to focus on Poland and Hungary only in the state of crisis when we had number numerous other member states. Uh, not playing by the games of the European Union or not playing by the rules of their own countries. And, like what, and, what, what, what member state? Do you have any in mind? So we... Well, we had the problem of Germany, for example, banning the export of certain medication, medications. So there, were, there was, I mean, the, the closing of the, of the borders were not done at, in many states at the very beginning, according to the Schengen rules. So there were lots of things. And... and uh, when we were discussing Hungary and Poland and voting about uh, about the resolution Orient just mentioned, uh, about, about the same days, there was a decision that all the uh, measures 
Babish, the government in Czech Republic has taken, were not according to the uh, laws. So practically, we are criticizing two states when a third state has completely breached uh, uh, all the rules because none of the measures they have taken were were lawful. Of course, they did. Come, uh, then, then they were trying to kind of renew it and did, did it did it differently. So they put it in order. But my question was why we are voting about two states when the third state is practically in a much dangerous uh, situation, or the, what happened there was much dangerous because it was decision which was not lawful. Rather than in Hungary and Poland, uh, their measures were allowed by the law. And I would bring up one point here, that because we did not like what the law says in Hungary about the state of emergency, that practically the, the government or the pr prime minister can, can rule by, by decrees, we were saying to, the, to Hungarians, to Hungary, that no, you cannot declare a state of emergency, but we wanted Poland to postpone the, the elections. So we were telling to Poland, that you have to declare a state of emergency because you should postpone elections. And I believe that this is definitely not the role of the, of the European Union to tell the, to the member states what laws they should uh, act accordingly and when. And, we, uh, and, on, and, and I saw also, ironically, the Hungarian parliament could convene any time. They were also always informed by the, uh, about the decrees and they could convene any time and, and practically uh, kind of vote against the, the, the decree taken by Prime Minister Orban. And other, other parliaments in some member states were not in sitting because they were unable to convene. So I think that the situation was marked more complex. And by certain way of looking into, I think we did more damage than... Uh, than, uh, uh, than help because the people practically in Hungary started to support Orban's measures because they felt that the European Union is against them and doesn't want to help them in, a, in a such a difficult times as, um, as COVID crisis. And my final point on this is also that I have to admit that unless we start to adhere according to the subsidiarity principle, and we know that the moral and ethical decisions, including the family law, should be decided by member states and is not the competence of the European Union. And we, uh, we can have different angles and different opinions, what is right and what is not right in Poland, but I think the European Union should stick to the subsidiarity principle because otherwise the house is going to fall apart if we don't uh, act according to our own rules and decisions that this is a principle uh, uh, rule. Thank you, Miriam, so, so much. There's so much in what you just said, but I, I wanted to, maybe Elisabetta, you can react to that. I, I'm interested to know because I, I think um, Miriam was saying something interesting, saying that there's a kind of obsession with uh, Poland and Hungary, and there's some kind of double standards from from the size from the side of the EU in terms of treating Poland and Hungary differently to other member states. So, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I just would like to raise two, two, two points to address the issues that have been um, uh, raised so far. Well, first, uh, that uh, this crisis uh, uh, really pointed out, uh, well, one big uh, weakness, if I can say, uh, about the European Union, which is the lack of a political hierarchy. Uh, on one side, if I may say, there, there was um, at one point a desire from uh, the from uh, the EU member states to have a reaction led, let's say, by the European Union 
that should tackle this crisis as a whole. On the other side, as Miriam pointed out, uh, there is this uh, another paradox that when the European Union actually takes action and uh, also starts um, having a, an active role within uh, national politics and policies, uh, then uh, uh, again, uh, a problem starts because uh, there is the question of where the, the power of the European Union should uh, should really should really stop. So, really, all these elements, uh, I think, create a very unstable situation that makes the situation more complex, if it is possible, because it is not clear really how the European Union should should act. On the other side, I think there is um, uh, a problem linked to really how to address this, this crisis uh, through a kind of dictatorship in order to control also people. Or on the other side, as Miriam pointed out, uh, um, a more liberal approach. And on that, I mean uh, empowering in some respect people by saying these are the rules. So now it's up to you actually to apply the rules in order to tackle the crisis. Um, we can uh, see the implementation of these different um, approaches, actually, if uh, we consider the crisis from a more global perspective, because uh, we see China on one side, where really there was a strong, uh, a strong dictatorship approach. Uh, on the other side, uh, Europe has a more, if I may say, hybrid approach. On the other, on one side, it tries to control but also to empower people. I mean, now the, 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 the very issue is to, is to find a, a balance in order to, uh, to find uh, a, an effective, uh, effective dynamic to, to tackle this crisis. Thank you, Elisabetta Aurian. I, I wanted to come back to the idea that I think it was interesting because Miriam was saying that first, there's some kind of double standards. And secondly, the EU is trying to rule in areas where it shouldn't, and this is backfiring. So I want to know, I would love to know your reaction on this. Yeah, so first, I mean, uh, Miriam is absolutely right to say that there are issues elsewhere and uh, the problems, especially regarding the respect of democracy, is not only in, in, in Poland and Hungary. And just to make a, a minor remark, now uh, the state of emergency will be lifted in France in, in, on the 10th of July, and already in the opposition, for instance, uh, there are criticism also on the lasting effect of the states of, of emergency. Um, so again, the, the problem is obviously uh, uh, larger. And I think it is still interesting to uh, see what are the European standards on this, because indeed there is a subsidiarity principle, uh, but there are also, uh, there are also legal texts uh, uh, on which the EU is based, in which a series of uh, normative values are listed and they apply for everyone. So I think even indeed we need to open the perspective on this specific uh, Polish and Hungarian issues. Uh, they, are, they are reminding us that um, um, these values need to be protected within, within the EU. Um, this is one thing. But Miriam and, and Elisabetta uh, also uh, underlined this paradox. Um, indeed, um, the, EU, the problem of the EU uh, is that it's a highly complex uh, um, entity. And 
There are indeed, indeed rules that should be applied to everyone. This is a, a legal system, but indeed other rules. And when we talk about values, when we talk about ethical values, it's an, indeed about also individual behaviors. And of course, the EU in many of these areas is not competent. So, um, and this is always, the EU is always walking, you know, on a thin, a thin edge uh, between uh, acting or non-acting. Um, and, uh, and here the responsibility is very often uh, on the side of the, of the member states, because, you know, very often when we talk like this, we debate, we say the EU, the EU, the EU, but in the end, uh, the EU is made up of this member states, uh, which in the end, through their debates, uh, take the decision. So we cannot abstractly blame the EU for uh, a problem of, or another. It's also uh, the EU is what the, the member states, the member state, states accept to do with it. Um, and it's exactly uh, the, the same uh, uh, on values. Um, if we want to ex to the EU to exist, um, to have an identity, so it's a very big word, but uh, um, there must be something, um, a, a, a common view on fundamental values. Uh, and this cannot only be, you know, the division of power uh, or uh, certain economic rules, etc. You know, we always blame the EU for not being uh, human enough. Um, so indeed, we need to search for a bit more flesh, so to speak, or 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 a, a, a bit more soul, let's say. Um, but this this needs to be a debate, and I think that's why indeed the EU should not intervene in certain very specific areas. But I think it's very uh, important to have these debates at the European level about abortion rights, uh, about uh, the rule of law, and about also other issues uh, within the private sphere. Because it's by debating them uh, that we become uh, more European, not necessarily by agreeing about everything, but I think uh, it's still relevant to discuss this at the European level. Otherwise, the EU stays uh, a merely legal economic uh, frame with no soul and big divisions when we face dramatic crises like the one we are going through today. Before I give the, the word to Miriam, I think uh, we have some of that written in the treaties and I, I have here in front of me Article 2. It says the EU is founded on the values of respect for human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, the rule of law, and respect for human rights, including the rights of persons belonging to minorities. So, Miriam, this is up for interpretation or this is clear for everyone what this means? Uh, I, I completely agree also with, uh, with Orion what she said. We have to discuss how we actually understand these values because it's definitely, definitely not clear. And I also support the idea and I, I'm for it. I mean, I mean, when we take, you, you listed, human dignity, I mean, for some people, human dignity and life uh, starts uh, at the conception and, and, and finishes with a natural death. For some people, it's only after birth, because obviously by, by birth, the mother can decide about the life of her child, if she wants to have it or not. Then we are talking about euthanasia. In some countries, there is already legal. In some countries, it's strictly forbidden. So, and these are absolutely primarily questions 
from which many other questions related to freedom or dignity or or human rights as such, or acceptance of, of different opinion or minority uh, approach to culture and life, all this evolves from, I think, the kind of basic understanding of what is life, uh, or also maybe the family uh, matters, how we understand family. And I think the, the problem was that when the European Union united, countries had very different laws on these very important issues. They were, or still there is a country, member state of the European Union, which obviously joined respecting all the treaties, because otherwise it wouldn't be possible to join, which has still abortion practically forbidden. So, and we cannot say that the values have evolved and some countries were left behind and then now we tell them that you have to change your mind about the values because the, the, the rest of the European Union has changed its mind. So, I believe that really a genuine debate is absolutely inevitable. And I would even say that uh, I'm, I'm not sure if Orion or Elizabeth mentioned the, the big debt as a kind of huge, huge step forward in, in terms of unity of the European Union, which I completely agree with. But if we are not going to be genuinely able to discuss these uh, cleaverages in the basic understanding of our value, I am afraid that the house will still be a house of cards. And I agree that there, probably there is impossible to come to a conclusion, but I think that there is a possibility to come to the kind of uh, boundaries of uh, respecting each other. We would agree on a certain terms uh, what is respected and what, uh, what, uh, what, where we have a different opinion. And I think that's, a, that's a very important to start with, obviously. Uh, the laws might be changing in different countries, but I think a respect for a different opinion, which the opi if the opinion was already embraced in the kind of basic understanding of the values, I think it's absolutely inevitable. And I see the pressure. I would just say, say one thing here. I see the pressure coming from the European Parliament because uh, many issues which are, I think, controversial in terms of principle of subsidiarity, or I understand them so, that they are probably a step uh, away from the competencies of the European Union. Uh, these kind of reports are passed by the European Parliament. And I can tell you that those powers in the member states who don't like the European Union and are trying to undermine the European Union uh, position are making sure that all these reports reach the population in the countries and they are trying to use this against the European Union. So it's not only a question of agreement, but it's, I think it's a question of the existence of the future of the European Union because the people in many, many member states are be becoming fed up that the EU is breaching its competencies. Elisabetta, would you like to, to react to that? Yeah, well, first of all, I would like just to, to say that I, I, I agree 100% with, uh, with Miriam. I think that uh, really she pointed out the, the, the very problem that the European Union not just need, but must uh, address. Um, and here I would like to, to, to link to Oriane as well, um, because in her book she rightly points out that uh, values are a taboo. The question is why 
the European Union um, finds so difficult actually to find uh, to, to 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 speak uh, and to address uh, to address values. I think that that medium nicely, in some in some respect, actually addressed uh, the, the 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 answer. The European Union should not just take uh, one uh, one way in order to understand things, but has to count different approaches that are that are taken by by states without actually pointing out uh, whether is um, whether the European Union agrees or not. I really do think that uh, it is important to to, to consider uh, values in a very broad broad perspective in order to to not to, to to provide a final definition of what these values are because as you say as you rightly read the European Union mentions uh, mentions um, values and norms but these values and norms are so broad that um, I think that that at the moment they leave too much space to interpretation therefore it is important to open the debate to understand the different interpretations about these values but at the very end also to provide a, a guide that should be understood uh, for sure and also suggested and then of course it's up also to, to the member states uh, that as Orleans it uh, uh, makes uh, make uh, the, the European Union to implement them uh, correctly and uh, presently, I really do think that uh, what the European Union integration process uh, should be uh, is uh, really the, 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 the very implementation of uh, the solidarity principle that is uh, presently, I think, the, the most important one in order to, to, to address uh, actually this, uh, this crisis. Yes, this, this, the final remarks of Elisabetta, whether you know, we have very broad values, but should really the EU give guidelines to how to interpret them here, you know, I think it's very tricky. It's uh, and maybe to go back to the, uh, you will think I'm obsessed with Hungary, but it's it's really an interesting case. But you know, one and and this is also also uh, mentioned by Miriam. The problem is that uh, the those against the EU um, use values to counter the EU, and. Um, for instance, because, you know, uh, Orban is really uh, in war against the EU to some extent. It's, you know, he attacks constantly the EU to promote his own vision of society, etc. So, you know, he opposes a liberal uh, EU to his, his illiberal uh, model, uh, which is fundamentally ethno-nationalistic, uh, etc. So, here you can say when you see the opponents of the EU and how they use values, um, well, you can it gives to some extent a, a substance to to the EU, um, but of course it also puts the EU again in in a, a dilemma. Uh, if the EU gives too much clear answers, and again the EU is not competent for this, then it will be attacked by the opponents. So uh, here, I think, uh, again, the EU, the, the debate must remain open, but to some extent, the, especially the Euro, the Eurosceptics and the, the, the nationalists like, like Orban force the European institutions to, uh, to, to, to act to some extent. So not to give definit definitive answers, uh, but still to reassess 
uh, what are uh, uh, our main values, even though, of course, they they they, they remain open and and uh, and uh, yeah, open to discussion. I was going to close I... this, Miriam. Go ahead, but I think it would be interesting if you react to what Torian said. She's saying that. Orban is a sort of war with the EU and Orban is using values to divide the EU further and attack the EU. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Yes, I would react very briefly because I think the problem is not that Orban is in a war with EU. He is in a war with EU because the weaknesses of the EU and inability of the European Union to have an open discussion and to kind of have a balanced approach to value, very sensitive value-based questions helps him because he is always kind of like attacking the European Union, the European Union reacts, and this actually helps Orban to uh, st stabilize his power. But I will come, and, and the weaknesses of the European Union is exactly that the European Union, unfortunately, any time trying to deal with Hungary is stepping over its competencies. And that's being used by the anti-EU forces, not only in Hungary, but all across the European Union. For example, the report about Hungary, which was passed about, I don't know, one and a half years ago, was criticizing the Hungary for their definition of marriage in their constitution, criticizing Hungary for the way how they educate children about certain values, uh, was criticizing Hungary about the way how they define life and uh, abortion in their law. Of course, there was lots of criticism of their media system, of the judiciary system, which is valid, but because it was mixed, in a far more cases of uh, uh, criticism, which is not the competences of the European Union, of course, it was absolutely easy for Orban to say like, oh, you see, the European Union is breaching its competences, it's uh, extending everywhere, it's a liberal power we have to stand against. So that's why I think the European Union should be far, far wiser, because this is not only Orban. As I can tell you, I was working in disinformation area before in many member states uh, we have forces which are using the failures of uh, the approach to the very basic values of the european union in advantage to take uh, it against the european union miriam i think I, I need to ask you something because you you've you've given quite a, quite a few examples but you didn't mention for instance when when the government of hungary is forcing a university to move abroad because they don't like the kind of teaching of free teaching that they are doing in that university. Is the EU right to criticize that move or not? Well, I mean, because it falls under the, the education, I think there are other institutions which should criticize this. And, and I, I completely agree with you that the attack was uh, inappropriate because it should have been done in a different way. I mean, or, but that was, I believe, it was a very personal, practically fight between two people. And, uh, and I'm not sure if the European Union played, uh, played a constructive role because, again, uh, we are somehow unable to focus on a certain matter and, and kind of rationally approach the matter and and not involving the criticism of everything in Hungary, which I believe that that's the kind of, uh, that's actually hell, uh, doesn't lead to any solution. Practically now there was a solution. The university has moved out and is in Vienna. And of course, I'm not sure, I cannot tell that this was an ideal solution or not. But also, I mean, the competence of the European Union in that particular matter 
uh, has to be seen uh, or has to, should not be breached just because we believe that this we don't like what's happening in Hungary. All right, Elisabetta Orian, I think we need to close this 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 fantastic discussion. I think I think it's it's being you're really showing how to have different views on a number of things and debating with with so much engagement and, and interest. So maybe you, you want to, to have a final word before I close this? Yeah, if I just may add something. I do agree with uh, with uh, with Orian um, regarding the fact that the European Union, uh, of course, cannot impose values, etc. But I would say as the European Union, and this is expected by states, the national state as well, uh, well uh, impose in some respect, uh, norms that are codified through laws. I would like to say that norms, before becoming norms, were values. And these values were in, uh, in, in the potential to become norms. So I think as the European Union has been able to codify some norms that have been agreed by states, at the same time, there are some uh, ethical values uh, that should be at least clarified and not uh, and not kept uh, in this uh, you know limbo uh, where interpretation can cause uh, more damage than uh, than active reaction thanks elisabetta orian a qu quick word to finish yeah yeah a final no no i do i do agree with this i do agree with what elisabetta said and just really for very final word um i think that you know the eu uh, cannot solve all the problems of, uh, you know, uh, triggered by such a, a major crisis. But at least regarding the values, uh, let's hope that the EU will at least play a role, you know, the role of the, the guardian of the, of the treaty where these uh, values are enshrined. So to protect our uh, uh, freedom, you know, in all what the COVID can uh, provoke in terms of limitation of freedom, of democracy. Um, so, at least the, the EU, I hope, will play uh, this role of, of yeah, of of uh, of protecting these fundamental values, also beyond uh, its action in the field of uh, of uh, of the economy, uh, etc. So I think the EU has still a role uh, to play in the field of values. All right, united in diversity. This is challenging sometimes. This is fun. This is Europe. I want to thank you. The three of you, uh, fantastic guests we had today, Orian Caligaro, Miriam Lexman, Elisabetta Nadaluti. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you so thank very much. Thank you. This was so for now. The Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debates and produced by Agenda Publica. This was our 10th and final episode of our first season. We will come back, but for now, I want to thank our great network of contributors. We've had more than 30 participants from the worlds of academia, politics, civil society, and from all corners of Europe joining us every week. And of course, I want to thank the more than 2,000 loyal listeners from all around the world. A final a personal note. Thanks to Agenda Publica and Open EU Debate for inviting me to present this series of podcasts. I've learned a lot. I've had a great time, like today. It was fun. It was interesting. It was, it was lively. What else can I say? And uh, nothing will be the same after COVID. And Europe, of course, will also change. And we need to be ready with answers. So stay safe and take care. Mm -hmm.